Ephesians chapter 1. Let me read the first couple of verses here. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so we'll just stop there. Uh, This is the greeting, of course, Paul, a typical greeting. Uh, Some letters he has a more extended greeting. Others, he's just kind of right to the point. And, um, but as we come into this, we're obviously in a new book, uh, Ephesians, another one of Paul's epistles. Paul has written 13 of them that we have recorded in Scripture. This is one of them. Um, it is a great book. Um, I mean, they're all great, but this one is great in the sense that, unlike other letters that he writes, that are answering questions or addressing problems. This one is more, I don't want to say general. It's just, it has, it's it's more broad sweeping. In a lot of ways, it's like Romans, but smaller, because Romans deals with big issues, and and Ephesians also deals with big issues. Um, So we're going to look at it um, over the coming weeks and months, I would imagine. Um, and we'll dig into it. But what we have here is, just as a theme for Ephesians, is it's really all about the glory of Christ in the life of the church. The glory of Christ in the life of the church. You see, you know, as you look at chapter 1, you're going to see the church conceived of in the mind of the triune God in eternity past, chosen by God, redeemed by the Son, sealed by the Spirit, all of this uh, Trinitarian work. Uh, when you get to chapter 2, you're going to see this, the, the work of the Spirit as, he, uh, as the triune God makes believers, dead sinners, alive in Christ through the work of the Spirit. You're going to see how the church is one in Christ. You're gonna, Paul's going to talk about this mystery that has been uh, given to him that he is now revealing. Uh, this, he talks about the mystery quite a bit in chapter 3. And then when you get to chapters 4, 5, and 6, he starts to unfold application. Uh, how does this apply to the life of the believer? What does this mean now to the life of the believer, these things that we've looked at in chapters 1, 2, and 3? So that's kind of the overall, overarching theme here, uh, the glory of Christ in the life of the church. You kind of see this in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 1. Again, Paul uses that term mystery. He says, making known to us the mystery of his will, God's will, the Father's will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, things on earth. That's kind of the glory of Christ in the life of the church, the uniting of all things in him, things in heaven, things on earth. But let's get down to some nuts and bolts here, just some background to the book. Uh, The author, who wrote Ephesians? Paul. How do we know? Because it says so. It's pretty good for me. Um, Universally acknowledged to be the Apostle Paul, well, until recent times. Until people who think that meatless vegan pizza is real meat 
You have people who just say, well, Paul's not Paul. It's like vegan Paul. I don't know. Maybe he's, it's fake Paul or something. Um, they they, they want to bring and, and, and throw doubt on Pauline authorship of this letter. And they give you two main reasons why. The first main reason is, well, the letter doesn't seem Pauline in character. Well, what do they mean by that? Well, you know... Think about this. Um, well, I'll get to this one point. Uh, it, it, you know, they'll just say, well, if you examine the way he writes here, it doesn't sound like the way he writes in the letters that we do acknowledge, like Galatians or 1 Corinthians or Romans. And then they also say that the author doesn't seem familiar with his recipients, which is odd considering Paul's ministry there. Now, that argument actually has a, a little bit of weight to it. Paul did, and we're going to look at this, Paul did spend at least two years or more in Ephesus. So you would think that if he's writing a letter to the church in Ephesus, that he would be more personal. Think of uh, Romans, a church he's never been to, yet at the end of Romans he's got a whole list of people that he's greeting that are there and that want to send their greetings. Here this, this letter has, other than a, a very bare greeting in the beginning doesn't really have much going on in the way of personal touches. In Philippians, he mentions a couple of ladies who are having an argument. In Galatians, well, he was really personal because they were about to abandon the gospel. In 1 Corinthians, he's really personal because they had a whole bunch of problems going on in that church. Ephesians doesn't seem very personal. Well, let me give you a rebuttal. So, as far as the letter doesn't seem Pauline in character, those, those kinds of arguments um, seem to be very obje- uh, subjective. All right, what do you mean it doesn't sound... I mean, I could tell you, you know, if you look at a letter I wrote, let's say, to my parents when I was 18 and I was in the Navy, compared to uh, maybe a, a term paper I wrote for seminary uh, a few years back, I mean, would you compare those writings and say, well, that doesn't sound like the same person? Of course it's not going to sound like the same person, right? I've grown. I've matured. I've, I've, I've learned more. Uh, the, the, the circumstances are completely different. I mean, the first evidence that we have here of Pauline authorship is the fact that Paul says, I wrote it. You know, the first word of the first sentence of the first verse in the first chapter says, Paul. And we need to take that into consideration. We also need to take into consideration that it's been universally accepted in the tradition of the church, among the early church fathers, that this was a Pauline epistle. And it was accepted and, and, and used in the church on that basis. They, if, if, it was, if Pauline authorship was in doubt, it wouldn't have received universal acceptance. You might say, well, what about the book of Hebrews? Well, in the book of Hebrews case... There was some debate. There was some debate on whether or not this this letter should be uh, added to our corpus of Scripture. It eventually was because it it evidences the uh, fruit and the evidence of being uh, inspired by God. And again, arguments for style are are often uh, subjective. It just feels like, well, you know, if you, if you have it in your mind that you want to doubt Pauline authorship, then you're just going to come up with reasons to doubt Pauline authorship. It doesn't look, his word usage is different. His, his sentence structure is different. Well, okay, 
Paul often used a secretary. <laughs> we saw that last week when we looked at the end of Galatians. When at the end of that book, he says, Here, see with what large letters I write. Well, was, weren't you writing the whole letter? Probably not. No, he was using a secretary. And we're going to find out Ephesians was a prison epistle. So perhaps Paul was dictating this to another secretary. Besides, uh, some sources even say that if you take the, the language of Ephesians and you run it through computer analyses, and I'm not sure how you would do that, but I'm just going based on what some of these sources say, it shows more in common with other Pauline writings than skeptics would like to or care to admit. Now, what about the unfamiliarity? What about the language that doesn't seem to um, resonate with a letter to a church that Paul spent two years there ministering? So questions of unfamiliarity can be answered by the fact that Ephesus was a large metropolitan area in that time. Ephesus, as we're going to find out, is, was considered the capital of Asia Minor. So if you can kind of picture the Mediterranean area, you've got... Greece, you got the Greek peninsula there, you got the Aegean Sea, and then across the Aegean Sea is the Asia Minor Peninsula there, which is modern-day Turkey. And right there on the west coast is Ephesus, and it was a major metropolitan city. It was the capital of that region in the Roman Empire. And there were probably a lot of satellite churches that may have popped up. Yeah, Byron. That, that's a good, yeah, I mean, that, that's something to consider as well. If you didn't hear that, um, by the year 60 AD, it was, um, the, uh, Christianity was no longer recognized as a Jewish sect. So um, by putting names, and we do that here, right? When we give you um, missionary reports from, from China, names are left out. And we're told not to publish these on social media because you could seriously endanger people in that region. So perhaps Paul left names out in order to protect the innocent. Um, but if you flip over to Acts chapter 19, and you might want to keep your place in Acts 19 because we're going to go back there in a moment. But if you look at Acts chapter 19 in verse 10. So this is Paul in Ephesus. This is during his, the beginning of his third missionary journey. And when he's there, we learn that this, his ministry in Ephesus, um, continued for two years. And then we're in that next sentence. So that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Now, that's a little bit of hyperbole. But the idea is that from Ephesus, when Paul was ministering there for two years, the gospel would have spread throughout the region. And not too far, if you have a map in the back of your Bible too, you might want to look at that. And not too far... From Ephesus are other cities that you, you know, you'll see these in, in the book of Revelation, too. 
right? You've got Miletus is nearby. You've got Smyrna to the north. You've got Colossae and Laodicea to the west. Um, it's possible that when Paul wrote this letter, he's not writing to a church in the city of Ephesus, but perhaps writing to all those satellite churches that may have popped up in the region of Ephesus because of his ministry there that's spread throughout all Asia, as, as we see in Acts 19. So it's believed that perhaps Ephesus may have been what they call a circular letter, okay? You're, you get these in the mail all the time, right? You know, the junk mail that you just kind of don't even open and just kind of chuck into the, into the bin, right? You know, the circular letter from, from whatever, you know, and it'll say, you know, it'll actually have your name, you know, Dear Carl, you know, from Ligonier Ministry. Like, okay, like they're really literally writing directly to me. No, it's just a form letter, and my name is on a computer, and they just plop my name in the dear section, and then, of course, it's signed, and it's an electronic signature. I don't think Chris Larson ever personally wrote me a letter. I don't think R.C. Sproul ever personally wrote me a letter. I don't think John MacArthur ever personally wrote me a letter. Um, I think their ministries just sent out these form letters to all of their donors. And this may have been a circular letter delivered by Tychicus, because you see that at the end of the book. Um, in verse 21 of chapter 6 as he's giving his final greetings so that you also may know how I am and what I am doing Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord will tell you everything I have sent him to you for this very purpose that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts and then if you look at the end of the book of Colossians just a couple of books over. Verses 7 through 9. Chapter 4. In case you're wondering, I'm gonna, I'll just give you the verse references. You can guess which chapter I'm going to be in. Now, chapter 4, verses 7 through 9. You see this guy named here, Tychicus again. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, there's a name you're going to hear later on. That's the runaway slave. Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place. And a little bit further down, um, when he's giving the, the greetings from the people who are with him, if you look at verse 15, Give my greeting to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. So in other words, he's writing to the church in Colossae. And he says, hey, when you read this letter, send it on to the church of Laodicea. And when they're done with their letter, they're going to send it on to you and you read their letter. I'm like, well, what's the letter to the Laodiceans? Well... If it's an actual letter to the church of Laodicea, we do not have that saved and in, in, recorded in Scripture. Some want to argue that the letter of Ephesians may have been the letter to Laodicea. Well, why do you say that? Well, <clears throat> because where it says in verse 1, to the saints who are in Ephesus, in some, you may not see it in the New, New King James, they may not have a footnote there for that, but there are some early copies of this letter where Ephesus is missing. 
And instead, it will say something along the lines to the saints who are also faithful in Christ Jesus. But there's a space there. <laughs> you know, remember I said those form letters, right, where they plop your name in there to, you know, dear Carl, dear Jerry, dear Byron, you know, whatever. Uh, and, and everything else is the same. Uh, some think that this is pro- perhaps a circular letter that may have been delivered by Tychicus along with the letter to the Colossians and perhaps the letter to the Laodiceans. Now, what's the common ground between Ephesians and Colossians? Well, both of them were written while Paul was in Roman prison, along with Philippians and along with Philemon. Those are the four prison epistles. So if he wrote those in a relatively short period of time, he probably just said, here, Tychicus, you are my delivery boy. Take these letters. This one goes to Ephesus. This one goes to Colossae. This is a personal letter to my friend Philemon. Make sure he gets this one. And then take this one to Philippi. Or something along those lines. So, all I have to say is, Paul is the author. (laughs) Paul is the author. Uh, I believe Paul is the author. I believe the arguments against Pauline authorship are specious. They They are lacking. They are wanting. So that's the author. Who is he writing to? So that's a question. Who is he writing to? To the saints who are in Ephesus, right? (laughs) These are not trick questions. (laughs) So he's writing to the saints who are in Ephesus. Now, as I said earlier, the city of Ephesus was the preeminent city in Western Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. It rested on the coast of the Aegean Sea, So it was right there. It was a coastal city, so it had a lot of traffic. A lot of uh, seafaring traffic would have come in. It was a very large city, fourth largest in the Roman Empire. It was a very large commercial center due to the fact that it it rested on major trade routes. Again, if you recall, when we were going through Revelation and those seven churches in Revelation, they're along a trade route. And the order that they fall in is to... If you start in Ephesus and you just follow that trade route in those seven churches, you will hit all of them. So Ephesus was the first one on those major trade routes. So it was a commercial city. It was a large city. It was a preeminent city. It was the capital, the Roman capital in Asia Minor. So it was the capital of that province. And Ephesus boasted one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Well, which wonder is that? Well, that's the temple to Diana, or the temple to Artemis. Uh, Again, you'll see that uh, feature prominently in Acts chapter 19 as well. So he's writing to this major uh, metropolitan area, this church that uh, that Paul has founded there, and then it's spread throughout that region. Uh, It's a large city, it's a big city, a preeminent city, a commercial city, and and a pagan city. It is a very pagan city. (laughs) Uh, it, it, you know, again, the temple to Artemis wasn't just like a museum. It was actually in, in being, it was a functional pagan temple where they did pagan rituals. What's that? Yeah, you know, yeah, they would have had temple prostitutes and everything there. So that's where he wrote. So he's, the author's Paul. He's writing to the saints who are, who are in Ephesus. When did he write this? The most common date given is somewhere between 60 to 62 A.D. So I, I just say 62 A.D., around that time, circa 62 A.D. 
Paul mentions his imprisonment several times in this letter. In chapter 3, verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. And then he pauses. And, and it's like, by the way, I want to I talk to you about something. And then when he's finished saying that, in chapter 4, verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the... So he picks up his thought again. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you. So he mentions it twice, and then in chapter 6, verse 20, at the end of the whole armor of God section, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Paul picks up on the theme of Christians as ambassadors, and he says, I'm in chains. Why? Because I'm in a Roman prison. I'm under house arrest. When did this happen? It happened at the end of the book of Acts. Right? At the end of the book of Acts, Paul says after his third missionary journey, I must go to Jerusalem. And everyone tells him, don't go to Jerusalem. Why? Because they're going to kill you. They're going to arrest you. They're going to persecute you. And he's like, I have to go to Jerusalem. And he goes to Jerusalem. Right? And he goes into the temple. And people then start making false accusations. He brought Gentiles into the temple. And then they, they cause a ruckus. And then Paul speaks. And he actually, it's funny because in the book of Acts he says, he spoke in the Hebrew language. So people then, they were quiet and they listened. And he gives this whole story. And then he mentions that he was sent as an apostle to the Gentiles. And when he says the word Gentiles, it's like as the words, the letters are escaping his mouth. G-E-N-T-I-L-E-S, as the words escape his mouth. Then the, the crowd erupts and wants to just like, pull him in, you know, they want to have him drawn and quartered. So Paul's arrested. He has a bit of a kangaroo trial. He appeals to Caesar, and then eventually he is taken to Rome. And then the book of Acts ends as he comes to Rome, and it says they put him into a house. He's under house arrest, and he's allowed to have visitors, and that's kind of how the book ends. And you're like, well, that seems like a sad ending. Well, no, I mean, it goes on from there. But the point is that Paul is there. And that would, that would have taken place around 60 to 62 A.D. And as I said, it's one of his prison epistles. So he wrote this one, Ephesians, or Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. He wrote from prison. Okay, so that's the date. So you got the author, recipient's date, the occasion. What was the occasion for writing this? Or what was the purpose for writing this? Well, as I mentioned earlier, reconciliation of all things to Christ and union of all people to Christ in the church. The glory of Christ in the life of the church. That's what this letter is about. Now, unlike a letter like Galatians or 1 Corinthians or 1 and 2 Thessalonians or Philemon, uh, Ephesians doesn't seem to have been written with a specific purpose in mind. Now, when I say that, I mean, he's, like I said earlier, he's not answering a question, right? Or he's not trying to correct an error. Galatians was written to correct a serious error. 1 Corinthians was written to correct a bunch of errors. 1 Thessalonians was written to answer a question. 2 Thessalonians was written to answer a follow-up question to the first question, and, 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 and so on. This one was not written with any of those, like, specific purposes in mind. And given the distinct possibility that the letter was written to the churches in and around Ephesus, this may answer why this letter has a bit of a more general feel to it. 
Uh, Ephesians speaks in broad, sweeping strokes about the grand purposes of God in Christ to reconcile all things to him and to unite all people in one new man in Christ. Now, given the culture in ancient Ephesus, this highly pagan, uh, secular, uh, anti-Christian culture that Ephesus was resting in, the topics and themes in this book that we're going to see are a fitting message to people who are in the center of a pagan capital in Asia Minor, right? They're going to be thinking, well, you know, we worship Artemis. We worship Diana, the great goddess. Well, it's like, no, God is the one you need to worship. God is the one who chose you from before the foundation of the world. God is the one who redeems you by the blood of Christ. God is the one who seals you by the Holy Spirit. So that's the background to... The letter. Now let's look at the kind of a little bit of the background to the church in Ephesus. And now this is where you want to turn back to Acts, um, actually really 18. We're going to spend a little bit of time here. Now when I say a little bit of time, how much time do you think that really means? People are chuckling. Yeah. Why? You think my definition of little is different than your? <laughs> All right, so the Church of Ephesus was founded and established by Paul during his third missionary journey. But it's not the first time he was there. At the end of his second missionary journey, he stops in Ephesus on his way back. So if you look at chapter 18, starting in verse 18, after Paul's ministry in Corinth, Uh, It says in verse uh, 18 of chapter 18 of the book of Acts, After this, Paul stayed many days longer, then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria. So he's going back home base, which is Antioch. And with him were Priscilla and Aquila. Then he says, At Sincrea, he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. Who? Well, Priscilla and Aquila. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews, when they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. This is so you can imagine that. It's like he goes into the synagogue, he begins to preach, and like, will you stay here? It's like, no, I can't stay here. I need, I need to go back. I'll leave you here with Priscilla and Aquila. So he says, no, I decline. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you, so I'll come back if God wills. Then he said, sail from Ephesus. And then if you drop down to verse 24, you get this guy named Apollos, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, so he's a, a um, that's North Africa, right, so he's a kind of a Greekified Jew. He came to Ephesus, and he was, elo- he was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. So he's a well, he's, he's, he's well-spoken, he's, um, he's a, a scholar of the scriptures, which when you see scriptures here, that's Old Testament. Uh, he had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he only knew the baptism of John. That's going to come up again in a little bit. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, and when Priscilla and Aquila, those were the people Paul left behind, when they heard him, they took him and explained to him the way of God more accurately. So in other words, they're like, Apollos, you're, you're real close, okay? 
Let, let me, let's explain to you just a little bit more, okay? You need, you need to learn a little bit more. You're not wrong, you're just not, you don't have the whole story. So let, let, let us explain to you more accurately the way of God. And then when that had happened, then uh, Paulus goes on to Corinth, which is why when, when we were in the study in Corinth, you remember you had the factions. I'm of Paul, I'm of Peter, I'm of Apollos, Right? So anyway, so that's, that's Paul's first visit. And then when you get to chapter 19, uh, you see here he returns during his third missionary journey. This would have been circa 52 to 57-ish, somewhere in that time frame. And he stays there two years in, in, in Ephesus, so looking at chapter 19. And when it happened that while Apollos was in Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country, and came to Ephesus. So he goes back to Antioch, t- takes care of business there, and then comes back. And when he, he follows the route, and when he gets to Ephesus, he comes there. And it says here, there he found some disciples. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no. We have not even heard there was a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands, his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly. So he returned like he promised, as God willed reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way, that's Christianity, before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years. So he was there two years. So that all the residents, and perhaps longer, two years and three months, or maybe the two years is inclusive, uh, this continued for two years, that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord. So there you have it. He's there for two years ministering to them. He founds this church, and satellite churches apparently popped up. Now the rest of chapter 19 talks about you know, some pretenders that come on the scene, and when they see Paul performing miracles, they want to go out and start casting out demons. And it turns out that uh, if you're trying to just do cheap magic tricks. Well, the demons don't particularly like that, so <laughs> they kind of uh, jump on, on these uh, sons of Sceva that uh, try to horn in on Paul's uh, ministry there. And then you get this riot. And the riot comes when the silversmiths in Ephesus are angry. Why are they angry? Well, because Paul's message is sweeping through the region. Well, what, is, what do they matter? You know, they're silversmiths. Well, what do you think they made? idols to Artemis and Diana, right? So they're seeing a huge loss in their profit margin. So they start to complain about how Paul and his companions have turned the whole world upside down with his teaching. And they come out and they start protesting and and they start beating, they pull a guy out and they beat him near to death. And and then uh, by God's providence, the um, magistrates come out and they say, you know, what's going on here? You know, we're, we're Ephesians. We don't do this, right? The courts are open. If you've got a problem, bring it to the courts. And then they kind of uh, settle down from there. Then on his way back, as he's going back to Jerusalem, 
after the end of his uh, third missionary journey, he doesn't go back to Ephesus. Well, why doesn't he go back? Well, probably because he doesn't want to cause another riot. But what he does do, he goes into a close, a neighboring city called Miletus, and he has the Ephesian elders come down. So you can tell already in the time that he was there, he established these churches and established leadership in these churches. So you see there at the end of chapter 20, verses 17 and following, uh, he gives his farewell address, if you will, to the Ephesian elders there. And, and part of that address warns them about how um, you need to guard uh, the church. You need to guard the right doctrine. Why? Because wolves are going to come in and they're going to sneak in and they're going to bring false teaching. So as elders, you need to guard the right doctrine. Now, why was that important? Because later on, after Paul is out of prison the first time, he writes to Timothy. Where's Timothy? Timothy's in Ephesus. This is a few years after he wrote the letter to the Ephesians. So probably in that 64 to 65 time frame. And he writes there, and he, first of all, he warns them of a couple of people, Hymenaeus and Alexander, who, are, who have shipwrecked their faith. He warns them about gossipers, about false teachers who come in and they, they uh, tickle ears and they uh, lead people astray with their teaching. He tells them that you need to make sure you set up strong leadership in the church, elders who, are, who can be held accountable, elders who have, are of strong character, who are able to teach, who are, who are pillars of the community. He tells them to bring order to the church there. He tells them, don't let them disdain you for your youth, Timothy. You have my seal of approval. Go forth in the name of the Lord and set this church straight. The last time we hear about the church of Ephesus, of course, is in the book of Revelation. Now, this would have been about 30, or 30, 30 to 35 years after Ephesians was written, after the Timothy letters were written. And this is a letter dictated by the Lord Jesus Christ himself to the Apostle John. And what do we learn about the church there? Well, they were really good at rooting out error. So apparently, whatever Timothy did there took, right? The elders were good about making sure no doctrinal error crept into the church. You know, that's what he says. I know your works, your toil, and your patience. This is uh, Revelation 2, verse 2 and following. And how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and are found them to be false. So they heeded the warning of Paul to watch out for the wolves who come in. They heeded the, the warnings and, and lessons of Timothy who raised up uh, elders and who uh, fought against false teaching in the church. The problem was they lost their first love. Worse than that, they abandoned their first love. So in their pursuit of doctrinal purity, they lost their love for Christ and their love for others. And of course, the warning to them is that if you do not repent, your candlestick, your you will be removed as a church. And sadly, there's no church there anymore. <laughs> right? The, they did not heed the warnings. I don't know how long after Revelation did the church exist, but at some point it gave in and is no longer a church. So that's the background of the church of Ephesus. Founded by Paul, strengthened by Timothy, uh, warned by Jesus, and eventually no longer a church. 
What about the overview of Ephesians? Well, moving a little more rapidly. Um, I could give you an outline, but really Ephesians just breaks down t- nicely into two main parts. Okay, chapters 1 through 3, Jesus, or Paul there uh, describes the wondrous truths of how we are uh, saved in eternity past by the work of the triune God, how that works out, as I like to call it, in space and time, uh, and how we are united, being united uh, into one new man, both Jew and Gentile. And this is a mystery that Paul was given the ministry to reveal this mystery, to, to um, manifest this mystery among the people. The mystery that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. It's chapter 3, verse 6. And he says, of this gospel I was made a minister. So these are the big sweeping truths that you see in chapters 1 through 3. And then when you get to chapters 4 through 5, you get how this now applies to our lives. He talks about unity in chapter 4. Very important topic in the church, unity. He talks about the new life in Christ, uh, how the old man is dead, the new man must be put on. He talks about how we need to pursue lives of righteousness and holiness, building one another up, not tearing one another down. He talks about the importance of love. He talks about being filled with the Spirit and what that means. He talks about submission and how that works out in all of the relationships between wives and husbands, between parents and their children, between slaves and their masters. Then he talks about standing firm in the power of God and talks about the armor of God. Those are really the two main sections in Ephesians. Um, and you can, you know, you can look in a study Bible or a commentary and find a more granular outline if you like, but really I think those are just the two major sections of the letter, doctrinal and practical. So now as we get to the first couple of verses, real briefly here, as he does in his other letters, Paul introduces himself. Paul, an apostle. Don't need to really get more into this. I've told the story of Paul a number of times, so you know his story. Um, the, the word apostle, of course, means a messenger, one who is sent. And he's not sent by the Jerusalem church. He's not sent by Peter, James, and John. He's sent by Jesus Christ himself. How do you know that? Well, because he tells his story. It's recorded in the book of Acts, and then he tells it two more times in the end of the book of Acts, how Jesus Christ stopped him on the way to Damascus and sent him as an apostle to the Gentiles. And just in case you were wondering, this is not anything Paul chose. It wasn't that he woke up one Tuesday morning and said, I want to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. No, it's by the will of God. <laughs> right? Because it's only God who is going to, to do in Paul's life what happened in Paul's life. Only God can make that kind of change in a person. So he's an apostle, a messenger of Jesus Christ by God's will. And he's writing to the saints, the hagios, the, the, the ones who are sanctified, the ones who are set apart, the ones who are holy in Ephesus. Now that holiness, of course, is not an inherent holiness. It's not an inherent saintliness. We're not saints because we're so good. We're saints because we've been called out by Jesus Christ. We're saints because we've been set apart by Jesus Christ. We are saints because we are united to Christ, as we're going to see in a moment, in coming weeks, I should say. They are in Ephesus. As I mentioned in some very early manuscripts, just a handful 
the word Ephesus is missing. It's in the majority of the manuscripts, which is why you see it in the New King James, because the New King James goes based on the majority text for the most part. So the saints who are faithful, who are faithful, they're reliable, they're trustworthy, they're faithful in Christ Jesus. There's that, that phrase, Paul's going to use that phrase a lot in chapter 1. In Christ Jesus, in Him, in the Beloved, in the Blessed One. All these things indicate union with Christ, being joined, that um, vital, organic connection that we have to Christ by the Holy Spirit. Then you see the standard Pauline greeting in verse 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's almost verbatim what he writes in nearly every single letter. Grace and peace, of course, come from God. Only true peace comes from God. Grace comes from God. And it's ours in Christ Jesus. So just bringing this to a close, uh, Ephesians, as I said earlier, it's a great book of the Bible, right? I I could probably say that about every single one of them. Uh, It's a great book in the Bible. And we're going to love, you're going to enjoy the time here in Ephesians. Uh, And I hope that we will be blessed as we go through this study. And some of the practical themes that are found here in this letter um, are things that we struggle with as, as sanctified sinners, right? That's what we are in Christ. We're sanctified sinners. Um, you're going to see talks, he talks about disunity, talks about selfishness, talks about relying on our own strength and things. And we're going to see these things, and Paul is going to give you the, the gospel cure for all of them as we go through them. But really what I want to take home here is the big picture of God's plan for the church. Again, it's the glory of Christ revealed in the life of the church. That's the big picture. And the gospel, of course, is front and center in this letter. As we look at chapters 1 through 3, you're going to see blessing permeate uh, all the words here. We are saved by grace. We're, We're saved in the beloved. We have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then we're going to see how our salvation is secure uh, as we're sealed by the Holy Spirit. We are, we are you know, Paul prays. Some of the prayers here are just wonderful. And then, of course, chapters 4 through 6 show us the wonderful gospel application. How do you live in light of this? What's the response to the saving gospel? Unity, love, sub- mutual submission to one another, reliance on God and his provision. I mean, these are all things that you see throughout the book of Ephesians. So I'll stop there. Next time, Lord willing, we will look at chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, which you may have heard this before, is one of Paul's famous run-on sentences. In the, in the original Greek, it's one long sentence with no punctuation. Now, I've tried it before uh, when I was younger, I'll, maybe I'll try it next week, too. I'll try to take one deep breath and read it out <laughs> in one long run-on sentence and see if I can get to the end of verse 14 without having to take a breath. But uh, we'll stop there. Uh, any questions?